0: Boys right. Looks like we're back in the mix, V. Back in yep. the mix.
1: Definitely back in the mix and in a interesting, interesting time in uh, the world of culture and sports. They always call it the dog days of summer, and I think we're really in those dog days of summer once basketball season ends, um, specifically in America. Um, and then you know it's like uh, you know the, the people in real life who have real life things going on. This is kind of that lull, like. The quiet before the storm of when they have to send their kids back to school and uh all of those things as well. Um always makes for a, a dull time in, in in news
0: and media. Yeah, I think we can uh quite fairly say that like from the second week of July until the end of the first week of August, nothing happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, not there's not too much not too much of relevance. I mean, but there are some things to talk about this summer. Um most uh most pressing is this kind of record uh heat in july july is typically always the hottest month of the year um regardless but this is actually a record year for heat in the world i think it's you know based on the data they said probably um the hottest uh month in the last 30,000 years of the existence of uh of the earth um that's you know, cra- obviously, it's global. Crazy, dude. Yeah, it's a global warming um, pandemic. I think uh, I just saw in Phoenix they just broke their their streak of eleven straight days of record breaking heat, and it was one eleven every day, and today it went down to one oh eight. Oh my gosh! Um, w- w- where I'm at, it's about a hundred degrees every single day. Um, obviously, the first conversation is around global warming. Um, and the reality of that and the impact that this type of heat has on, on the ecosystem and, you know, agriculturally and so many other ways. Um, but then also, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for the global warming debate. If I'm surprised there even is a debate about it personally. Uh, but that is the debate, uh, that exists. Um, but this heat is unbearable, man. Like it, it, it really kills your vibe and your mood you don't want to go outside when you go outside you immediately feel the rush of that heat and it it, it's like damn it's hot that's the first thing you'll ever you'll say and in in this type of heat combined with the type of humidity that exists in in many parts of the u.s is is really also killing the summer vibes this year
0: yeah yeah I i totally agree with you i mean over here not so much i think we've had our heat wave which is like 85 you know, maybe 90. Um, It was a little hot when I was moving spots over the weekend. But I, it's just like, it's funny how moving to California has put me so out of touch with the rest of the country. Like I remember growing up in Ohio, the, the heat wave actually meant something. And here it's like, I've heard it and it's like, I just can't relate.
1: <laughs> the issue that the issue that L.A. is having uh is not necessarily related to heat yet. I mean, although that is what triggers your annual and consistent forest fires, um, knocking on wood for y'all because it doesn't seem like it's as major of a problem yet this year, despite the heat wave. Um, but it seemed like the, 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 the thing that was frustrating people in LA throughout the winter and the spring was, uh, the abnormal cold and the excessive rain which is always interesting because people in California always complain about droughts and rain that it, when it rains, they have like been complaining about the rain. I was like, this is actually good for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The rain and, and all that was just super good. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's <laughs> like definitely, um, I think also when you get this kind of heat, you're just like, where's all the trees, <laughs> you know, yeah. If you're in the city. You're like, wait a second. Like, why is it so hard to find some shade?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's they've actually done some. There's been some data on on this this heat wave and how um, it is impacting people's mental health. It seems like a, it's an interesting angle um, because it's um, there's there's an NPR article that I saw um, just breaking down how the heat can affect your brain and and mood, um, and you know, it, it, things like brain fog. Um, you know, stress, anxiety, all of those things um, come out with this heat. Um, you know, also interrupted sleep. You know, um, and there's actually a study that was published in 2021 that um, that documented a dip in cognitive performance at air temps of 79 degrees or more. Researchers found that as the temperature rose, activity in the parasympathetic nervous system. The anti-stress system that can help us stay calm and relaxed was lowered, plus oxygen saturation levels in the blood were lower at the elevated temperatures as well, which the researchers said could be expected to result in reduced cognitive performance. So it's fairly interesting um, with this data out there. um, Maybe this is the reason why all these politicians are acting the way that they're acting right now and saying these crazy things and taking these crazy positions, but... It's definitely something to be concerned about and something to address and be taken seriously because last July was also um, record breaking. So this is this is a trend that could have some problematic effects on society um, if if we don't take the steps um, that are required. I know there's been a massive um problem with air conditioning as well um there are are air conditioners going out lack of service technicians to fix those air conditioners that's a big problem in in houston people are 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 actually in some apartment complexes that the air conditioning has went out they've been forced to put their tenants in hotel rooms um while they wait someone coming in fixing those problems wow
0: that's crazy dude it must be really brutal over there in houston
1: it's brutal. I mean, for me it's not as bad. I mean, I'm from south side of India, so and I south and I, and, <laughs> and so I uh I, I don't mind heat. Obviously, it's an it's an annoyance. Um and it doesn't make me want to be outside. I like working outside. Um it prevents me from doing some of those things, but you know, I tolerate it, but it definitely sucks that you know, in the summertime, during the days, you're pretty much restricted to being indoors. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, uh, it's definitely, you know, wild whenever the, whenever the weather acts up and it's like kind of like with your computer, when it starts getting really hot and you hear the fan turn on and then your computer just all of a sudden, like, isn't that fast anymore. I feel like that's how our brains are when it's super hot outside. It's just like you're cooling. And so none of your, none of your body's power is going to your brain anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I was I was um looking at some of the uh, college football stuff this week and I was uh I was a little surprised to see Colorado make that jump into the Big 12 um from the Pac-12. I think it makes sense for sure given what the program is trying to accomplish and um the fact that the Pac-12 just hadn't figured out their media situation yet, but it did sound like the PAC 12 conference was really taken by surprise with that move.
1: They definitely were. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, interesting things happening in the college football landscape and we'll see how this all plays out. Um, I mean, PAC 12's relevancy as a conference is definitely being threatened and it'll be interesting to see um, what happens um, moving forward here with that conference, um, was already, the writing was on the wall with the USC and U- UCLA exiting. Um, but you know, there's no, nothing like, uh, like your, uh, validity being challenged. I'm sure they will figure it out. This has happened. Um, the, the big 12 has dealt with these challenges very significantly over the last few years. Um, there are definitely enough universities, uh, mid-sized to upper-sized universities, where they can figure this thing out. But at the end of the day, it's it seems like both the Pac-12 and the Big Twelve's relevancy as conferences um, is pretty much gone um, on on the national landscape with the with the losses and the challenges that both of those conferences have faced over the last few years. Yeah.
0: And I, you know, we all saw coming when we saw the first domino fall, which was Oklahoma and Texas deciding that they were going to go to the sec last year. Um, And, you know, I think this is the last year they're playing in the big 12, right. And then next season they start in the sec. So, um, you know, those are kind of marquee big 12 teams from a brand perspective that when you lose something like that, it would be like Ohio State and Michigan leaving the Big Ten. Like it, it really doesn't leave a lot in the conference. So you know, it's it's I think a new era in college football. It may turn into just a two conference um, league over time. These leagues, these uh, smaller smaller conferences like the Big Twelve, the Pac Twelve, um, you know, might have no other option than you know first like to consolidate. And we might see the Big Twelve and Pac Twelve become one conference. Um, and an attempt to kind of hold out, but I think, you know, when you have the blue bloods in your conference, when you have the biggest selling programs in your conference, there's really not a lot the smaller conferences can do to compete or to incentivize those, those teams to get away from that level of competition. Because when you have this kind of like playoff system, you want to play the good teams everywhere. Every year you want to beat them in the regular season so you can demonstrate you're good and your team's actually better when you play the good teams and we've seen it you know over and over whenever a pac 12 or a big 12 team makes it to the playoff they're you know typically significantly disappointing and honestly like i would even say the same often about big 10 teams because again there has not been that much high level of competition that we just haven't seen them be as successful in the playoff like typically we see the SEC teams tend to be a lot more dominant in that environment because they play better teams all year. So, you know, I think, like, this this could be just one, one more ramification of that switch from that BCS system to the playoff that, you know, maybe nobody saw coming.
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think a big trend that's happening, too, and challenges that traditional academic institutions are facing, and, you know, this is something that, you know, I've had several conversations with people at Ohio State about is that Ohio State as an academic institution is not willing to go all in on NIL um, the way some of these Southern SEC schools, where the academic standards um, are relatively insignificant compared to uh, the the focus on sports and athletics. So, I think that's also a reflection. Although I will say this is that. Um, Alabama um, is in the SEC and they are kind of taking the same position on NIL, not going all in on it um, the way other universities are. And they are actually attracting attracting players based on it being the best opportunity and the best competitive environment. So uh, I think there is an opportunity for individual schools within any conference to offer that to high-level athletes and become that. It just takes some institutional, um, direction and institutional, uh, care. You're going to, I think we're going to see significant changes at a program like Colorado, for example, who has been terrible for the last 20 years with the infrastructure they're creating with a high profile coach, um, and, and making it a place, um, of competitive excellence. So I don't want these schools, um, to, to get too caught up in conferences. If you build it, they will come. Um, and you see that. but again, there are challenges that are faced with TV money and actual financial and economic challenges that um, that quite frankly, quite frankly, that right now um, the Big Twelve and and Pac twelve cannot compete with the financial resources of of the deals um, that the SEC has with ESPN, ABC, uh, as well as the deals that um, Big Ten now has with Fox, yeah, CBS.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's really true. And, you know, I think um, one other kind of interesting thing this season is that you have, I think for the first time, Alabama's not the favorite in the SEC. I think Georgia would be the favorite if you ask most people. And uh, a big part of that is, um, you know, I think a lot of people felt that Alabama underperformed relative to the talent they had the last two years. And they had, you know, the best quarterback in the league the last two years. Um, so I think it's just an interesting moment where Alabama has like a real chip on their shoulder, probably for the first time since 2010, you know what I mean? And I think that's really good for football to let the power dynamic change. Um, from an Ohio state perspective, I think that we have a really, really good schedule, really good conference and, um, I'm just very much looking forward to putting a beat down on on Michigan this year. I think it's been a long time coming. And, you know, hopefully this culture that's being built, some of the new new players that have gotten into the system, um, you know, hopefully we're you're fueling that intensity a little bit harder this season.
1: Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think um, we we um, are going to have an intense college football season. Um and definitely looking at intense football season generally as NFL training camps have have gotten into full swing we actually have our first uh, first uh, preseason game uh, this week there's some controversy around whether or not the Jets would actually continue to play Zach Wilson or if he would make an appearance in in the game and they're saying he is um, we'll see how that whole saga plays out. Um, the rumors are that he's not handling, he's handling it about as, as maturely, um, as you would expect him to considering the challenges that he's faced within his, his locker room. This is going to be an interesting time for, for Zach Wilson <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of folks. But, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the topics that keeps coming up, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago related to football is the value of the art running back position. Um, and if you know, Across all, if if you're a fan of football, you realize the importance of that position um, in impacting a game. One of the biggest frustrations we've had as Ohio State fans is the lack of emphasis on the run in the in the past few years. Um, But again, running backs continue to face challenges. Saquon Barkley recently signed a um, signed a deal that was less than the franchise just to come back on a one year deal, Um, and then Jonathan Taylor recently um asked for a trade um from the Colts um I don't know what's going to happen but you know if if the thing that I don't think these folks at the NFL level are understanding is that if you continue to undervalue and devalue the position less and less kids um and their parents are going to encourage athletic kids are they going to encourage them to play that running back position through college and through the NFL and what do you do when you lose that position in its entirety? They're not thinking about the long, as as with most things, people are only seeing the short term impact, which is we can squeeze these guys and devalue this position. We can, if we have the right system, we can draft guys late in the draft. The um, the, one of the more interesting cases that I saw was with um, Isaiah Pacheco, right? He is a seventh round pick with the Kansas City Chiefs. Then basically, based on the structure of his deal as a seventh round pick, he is not going to enter free agency until his age twenty eight year, and he also can't be franchised. Um, so those are those are the the realities um, that he's facing, um, and and it's just very unfortunate. It's like you know, at a certain point, you've got to look at these guys and say, okay, is this fair? Um, but you know, one of my favorite, um, favorite phrases and, and it sucks. I don't like the phrase, but it's not, it's, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. Um, and the negotiating leverage of these players seems to be very low right now.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. So what is in your view, like if you let this play out right and the running back position ends up not getting compensated. League doesn't do anything about it because I think there's, there's a few complications. If they do anything preferential to that position itself and not the rest of them, then it's not going to get past the players' unions and, and it's not going to get included in the CBA. So, you know, it's kind of a stalemate situation. Provided that they don't find a solution, what happens long-term to the sport of football and the way we, we see it, like w- what changes in the game?
1: I mean, the entire strategy of the game changes, right? Because the, the structure of teams that will become probably an all passing league, which again, you know, part of the reason that it's so difficult to defend in football is that you don't know what is coming to eliminate, uh, the running back, um, role in football would completely change the game and honestly would make it much less interesting there are certain leagues you know in which passing is overly emphasized already like the arena league there's a reason why they don't resonate the same way as football it's the strategy it's the strategy on the defensive side of the ball the strategy on the offensive side of the ball there could also be an additional collateral impact for the offensive lineman because the value of an offensive lineman typically is is related to um two things their run blocking skills and their pass protection skills um, and if you eliminate that, it devalues that position to a degree as well um, and and devalues all around what football is i mean this is this is a a a core part of the game, and what i what I think is that the players' union needs to take a stand here. Um, there is no football player that you will talk to um, that will say that any position has to work as hard and go through as much punishment as the running back position. Like my position on this is that they need to adjust, um, adjust contract structures for running backs. um, First contracts. If they, if they achieve over a thousand yards in their first three seasons, there's escalators, things like that um, to protect the value of this position, because it is, it is so critical because the running back, Plays a role not just running, but they also play a critical component in the pass game, and they also play a component, a critical component um, in pass protection. There re- rarely is a team that you will see win a major championship or win uh, in, in at the college level, high school level, or NFL level without a, a strong running game.
0: I think what's uh, what's also challenging for it too is that when you've had folks hold out in that position the replacements even undrafted folks have performed significantly well um, in good systems so I think that the to your point earlier there's not really a lot of leverage for the running backs in this negotiation because it's not like it's not like we've seen that there is a significant difference in outcome between you know a, a running back that it was a first or second round draft pick and a running back that was a sixth or seventh round draft pick like it's really a systematic position. And so from, from that perspective, like I wonder if, um, what are your thoughts on even eliminating the title of running back and just having everybody who's a receiver or back in the same category?
1: I mean, you can categorize it that way, but the, but the, the, The reality is, is the teams are going to do what they're going to do because they realize that the lifeline, because of how much they're exposed to, even if you change the contract structure, it doesn't change kind of the way that salaries are slotted in the draft because your first contract is your first contract. So, I mean, the owners have to, uh, and the players union need to figure out a way to front load um, running back salaries on the front end of their career, like ages 22 to 28, if they are going to say that running backs are not effective after the age of 28, then they need to front load though that specific positions contract because of the, of the brutality of the position. I think that's only fair, um, to do so because I have friends who played running back in the league for, for, you know, six, seven years, and their bodies are completely broken down. You know, they still have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. Um, Those, you know, as as you know, most of these musculoskeletal injuries show later in life, and that it's essentially, it's akin to getting in a car crash every time you get hit by a linebacker, and to not protect these guys, but ask them to expose themselves to that risk, um, is, is, there's something troubling about that.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's it's a position with low longevity. I mean, I think it also it begs the question: Why is there demand for people to play that position if it's not being compensated well? Also,
1: yeah, hundred percent. So there's there's going to be collateral damage here, um, and you, and we'll see how how the sport handles it. I really was. Um, d- d- did not like what Jim Ersay came out and said um about it and about the topic uh generally speaking and uh you have to acknowledge um what these you have to acknowledge what what these guys uh do and provide and the value they provide even if you're going to say we have to figure something out that's okay right <laughs> but saying that there's nothing that we're going to do here there's no changes that are going to be made is 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 very insensitive and also poor strategy in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it's it's um interesting too because when Andrew Luck retired, the Colts paid him an extra twenty four and a half million dollars that they didn't need to pay him.
1: A hundred. And so it's
0: like this is an organization that you know typically is very players first, and it's surprising to see. And, you know, Jonathan Taylor is a is a very um, highly recruited running back. He performed well. He was drafted well. He's an incredible asset to a team like that. And when you have a new quarterback who is also very agile, and you're going to be running an option style offense, it would make sense to keep him. And their backup—I don't know if you saw this—their backup just got injured yesterday. So they just signed some some other guy off this off the street, basically. Um, to play running back now. And it's like kind of on one side, like why would you do that to your org? But then on the other side V like to the point I was making earlier, like it has been shown that you could more or less pull someone off the street and they're going to perform just as well as a top running back. Like there's not that much of a difference in performance. I think Le'Veon Bell is a great story of that. So, you know, I think, I think it's challenging because nobody really in that position has the leverage um, to get comped.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, 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 greatest disparity here, right. Is if you look at the Saquon Barkley situation, one year, $10 million. Um, let me look this up on, in terms of, um, he is, you take Le'Veon Bell off of that team. They're not a playoff team last year. They become significantly worse. Um, and, but then you look at their, their, a uh, quarterback who gets a record contract after having one decent year i think he's getting paid close to uh 40 million dollars a year so that's where this issue really comes into play is 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 when you look at the actual performance of the team is daniel jones uh more important to this team or is is Saquon Barkley, and if that's the case, then why is Daniel Jones getting paid uh, so much more guaranteed money, uh, and and also per annum making a a a significantly larger amount? He has eighty two million dollars guaranteed in his contract. If if Saquon Barkley plays this year and gets hurt. He's not making another dollar in the NFL.
0: That's that's a thing that's that's crazy about it, is literally the owners and the GMs are all collectively saying the running back position is not meaningful when it comes to performance. Like the difference in skill level from a Saquon to, you know, an undrafted who who they could sign tomorrow is not that meaningful for them financially in terms of what they're gauging their success to be like. You know what I mean? That's like that's what this is saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's 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 a claim they make, but then when you look at the data and you look at the stats and you say, why did the New York Giants perform better than most of the teams in the NFL? It's directly related to the fact that they had a guy named Saquon Barkley on their team. I, I think they there's very there's
0: impact, but like that's where I would push back because a lot of the data that I was reading showed that whenever you replace a first-round, second-round draft running back with an undrafted running back, the undrafted is doing a thousand yard season in the same system. Like it's not, it's like the skill level of the position doesn't seem to create significant differentiation in outcomes for the running back on the team. It's more, it's more the line and the construction and the play calling that's creating the outcomes.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it's, it's, there's arguments to be made either way, but I mean, I think it's undeniable if you just look at Super Bowl championships. You know, the greatest example is, is, is the Marshawn Lynch Seahawks situation where if they would have just handed the ball to Marshawn Lynch, they would have scored a touchdown. I think part of this is, is the devalue in the position, the reality that you can have an average or, or decent running game without an elite running back. But if you look at every team um, that performs well and gets to the Super Bowl, Um, it's usually because they have great performance, um, from that running back position. And it's not about necessarily, um, you know, putting them on par with quarterbacks. It's about making sure, like example, the guy, like a guy like Isaiah Pacheco who came in and significantly impacted the chief's ability to win after their first round pick Clyde's Edward Hilaire kind of was a bust, um, in this past season, you know, the fact that that guy is never going to see a real money or a real payday in the NFL, um, and that uh, is is very unfortunate. Um, and, and that's that's what needs to be corrected. If you outperform, and you score a certain number of touchdowns, you get a number, a certain number of yards. It's very clear the impact you're having. Um, you should get some sort of bonus structure or something for those things to make sure you're compensated fairly. We live in America, after all. That's what everyone equal pay for equal work, uh, running backs feel like they're getting less pay for more work right now. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, that's (laughs) definitely true. And if like, I think that's the overall point, if it's not valued, then don't, don't do it. Play different position. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's, that's what, that's, what's going to happen here is that people are not going to, um, that's, that's the most glorifying position when you are in youth football, when people are not fully developed, people, quarterbacks aren't fully developed. The star of the team is whoever is playing running back. From 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 Pee-Wee League all the way to NFL. It's just it just doesn't that's what makes it so hard for running backs to accept this is that we literally are the stars of every team we play on. Then you say we're not worth anything. It does because we don't have longevity. If we don't have longevity, then pay us on the front end. There is a difference between a Saquon Barkley and um any running back that, um, that the, uh, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers rolled out last year, there is a significant difference between a Dalvin cook, um, and other running backs because he essentially is an elite receiver and, and elite running back. I mean, these are things that are very apparent and, and just like in every situation, I don't, I don't think you should categorize a group as a group. It's, it's based on value. You know, certain teams are running back has more value than on other teams and on those teams that running back should be paid commensurately with his value to that team.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's such a weird, it's a weird one because the quarterback market too has like really shot up. Right. And so you've got not just quarterbacks, but like literally every other sport is getting paid way more. So if you look at like your options, if you want to be a pro athlete, like the running back position has some of the best athletes on the team. So let's just, you know, set that there. But if you have the build of a running back, you know, you're probably better off playing soccer. Yep. <laughs> or, or even yep. running track. I mean, it just not it just doesn't seem like the trade-off's worth it these days.
1: No, it's not. It's not, but that like I said when you look at how football culture works, they're going in at, at the youth level, high school level, they're going to put you at running back.
0: Yeah. You know, and you got to find your or way you're gonna be, out or you're
1: going to or you're yeah. going to be yeah, you're going to find be an your way to safety
0: that's, and that's where you're going <laughs> to yeah. do really well and have a 15-year career.
1: Yeah, the 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 thing that the, the overall thing about this is the NFL doesn't have have the need to have a salary cap. Or they can adjust the salary cap. They can find more money for these guys in this position. There's more than money, enough money floating around. Uh, Roger Goodell doesn't deserve more money. He, he gets paid like almost $200 million a year. If they can pay the damn commissioner that much money, they can find money for the players. Well, I don't think
0: it's, I don't <laughs> think it's about um, that. I think that the lockup, at least from what I've read, is more on the players association side. Because if you create a contract structure that's unique for one position, it could end up disadvantaging the other positions.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, the thing is they just, they need to adjust the salary cap up in, in the NFL overall. So it's easier for teams to retain and pay players. That's, that's the bottom line. Like the NBA definitely has penalties for going over the salary cap, but you see teams like golden state willing to pay those penalties. Um, that's the thing about, about, uh, about the NFL cap. It's much more restrictive. There's no disagreement. It is the weakest players association and union, uh, amongst all of the professional sports organizations of the United States. That is problematic. And then also there isn't, um, it's not structured well to be able to survive a, a true player walkout, you know, or a strike. The NBA players have actually walked out and there has been lockouts before um, the NFL no, owners know the leverage that they have over these players and teams. Where, yeah, sure, Aaron Rodgers can survive um, without his paycheck, but a guy that's getting paid $300,000 a year or $350,000 on the NFL minimum or is on the borderline of making an NFL roster, they can't afford to go without a paycheck for a whole year. You know what I mean? So that's, that's, that's the leverage that the owners have, and it it would just be nice um, for them to think of this thing not as 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 a black and white issue financially, and just think about how do we how do we make sure we do well. As franchise owners, because if you look at the value of these franchises, Dan Snyder is a great example. This guy did everything he possibly could do. He bought this organization for eight hundred million dollars. Did everything he possibly could do to torpedo it and and destroy its value, and just sold the organization for six billion dollars. That gives you a perspective into the amount of money that is floating around the most popular sport in America, and it and. They need. They need to figure this thing out and be be fair to players who are who are risking their lives. It's just how I don't have the answer, but there are answers if you want them.